In London, technology is the Silicon Roundabout. Introducing a new talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. Silicon Real. Each week, interviewing entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, financial technology, accelerators, and incubators in an exciting three-person format. Learn about the people behind the innovation. Locally filmed, locally sourced. Silicon Reel. It's about the people. All right, I'm starting this off. You guys ready? Yeah. Okay. Here we go. This is Silicon Reel, the video podcast dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. I'm Brian Rose. I also host London Reel, which is a similar format. We get three people in the room. We talk a lot of nonsense, see if we can figure some shit out. <laughs> um, we've had uh, guests like uh, Tim Ferriss from the 4-Hour Workweek. We had uh, Bruce Perry from the BBC series Tribe. We've even had drug smuggler Howard Marks in here. All good people. But uh, we're here to talk tech. My co-host today is none other than Mr. Max Kaiser, who hosts the Kaiser Report on uh, the television channel Russia Today. <laughs> he was uh, former our guest, formerly our guest on London Real, where we talk about, uh, what, Bitcoins, Bernanke, and Buffett. We had a lot mm, to talk about. The three Bs. Yeah, and you were uh, most recently here to talk uh, crowdfunding, uh, maybe crowdfunding George Galloway's run for mayor. That's right. And uh, your new company, StartJoin. Mm. You're becoming quite a presence here in the Silicon Roundabout, Max. That's right. I bump into you sometime. Sometimes I I'm feel a, like... I'm becoming a presence, a nuisance. I'm becoming presence. a nuisance on, around the Silicon Roundabout area. Sometimes I feel like you're stalking me. I don't know what's yeah. going on. <laughs> the Hoxton Grill. That's my, that's my office now. Is that? It's mm-hmm. great in there. Free free web access. It's you get good. the web web access. Good good coffee. The uh, the waiters are very uh, surly, so I feel like I'm back in Paris, which I enjoy, ah. and uh, <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Thank you so much for being co-host today. I appreciate it. It's good to have you here. Super. All right, our guest today is Mr. John Bradford, who is the uh, managing director at TechStars, which is the uh, number one startup accelerator in the world. Reputedly. Reputedly. Strong words, strong words. I like that. Um, TechStars uh, provides uh, companies with uh, free office space, I think uh, an initial seed investment, maybe around $18,000. In exchange, you take about 6% in the company, and they do a 13-week boot camp program with you. Absolutely. In one of seven cities around the country, around the world, you've got Boulder, you've got San Francisco, Austin, London... A lot, right? Yes. You've had how many companies come through your, your place? Um, in total, across the board, uh, there's now almost 300. Yeah. Uh, in London, we've just recently opened, so we've only just started. Uh, so we've just finished 10 teams, and we're on the lookout for 10 more. Okay, awesome. Welcome to Silicon Rail. Not at all. Thank you for having me. You, you're, uh, you're very welcome. You know, your name has been dropped recently by a lot of people, and I find when I keep hearing someone's name over and over, then sooner or later... They was there a swear word show. involved in that process? Just like, yeah, yeah, blah, blah, John Bradford, John Bradford. And I, I was actually at a, a law firm this week, uh, Taylor Wessing, you know, oh huge international law firm. And I it wasn't into, me. Yeah. It's completely unfounded. Really, I don't know. And I was uh, <laughs> talking with guys that are very smart guys. They're one of the few law firms to have a presence right here in Shoreditch. Yeah. I think they're right here on Eastern, uh, on Great Eastern Street. And... Uh, uh, they mentioned you, Simon Walker, one of the partners there, yeah. mentioned you, and we were talking about the bubble, uh, the first tech bubble. And yeah. I, I was actually part of that. I was, uh, I was here as a broker in the city of London. Yeah. I was 27 years old. This is 1999. I was doing okay. Not great. And uh, I got an offer to be the CFO of a dot-com startup in New York City called LuxuryFinder.com. Yeah. We had $15 million in funding from like all the hot names in the Hamptons, like Leon Black and all these crazy people. And I went there and, and knew nothing about what I was doing. Working in the city is yeah. not the same as being have you, a CFO. Have you ever played Top Trumps? Is Top Trumps a UK thing or a US no, thing? Is this like a bluffing game? What is it? Yeah, yeah. So, so I can beat that. So I was a CFO 
of a startup in London that had raised $25 million and equally uh, it had never been heard of before. What it was year, called what year was this? paperx.com and it uh, wasn't a porn. Okay, uh, what, what, year? what year? 2000. All right, right We raised uh, $25 million in six weeks from the first point we announced it. This was first quarter 2000, right? This was, it was the week before Christmas we went out to raise money. Okay. And they had closed and the money was in the bank by the end of January. In 2000? In 2000. Right, okay, because a year later you couldn't yeah. have done that. Uh, in, in 2001, in March 2001, I switched the lights out. Yeah, because that was the bubble. Because yeah. the, the top of the NASDAQ was like uh, March or yeah. June of 2000? It was yeah. June, because June. we went from okay. zero to 85 people, and then about six weeks later we were 30. Okay. And, and clearly, like Soho Square is the place that you really want to start a startup. Mm. <laughs> yeah, we were talking earlier about about costs of startups, but I remember when I was part of this whole crazy thing. I remember getting a magazine like Wired or uh, Fast Company, and you go through the magazine, and there was like twice as many ads as copy. Yeah, and there were these full color ads of all of these, and the thing was like an inch thick. Do you remember uh, the conferences? Uh, it's yeah. the only thing I refer back to. I really think, do you know, conferences then actually had proper swag bags. Mm. Like you had tickets for Concord and you had like three bags to put inside the bag that you had already turned up with. And it sounds like, it feels like I've been cheated now. You go to a conference and you end up with one of these linen things with three things inside. Yeah, well, that's, just, a, that's an interesting uh, question. Um, yeah. let, me ask, let me ask a question. <laughs> go on. Um, you, the IPO money that was raised during that time, as you point out, it went yeah. into a lot of things like promotion mm -hmm. and swag, and uh, yeah. it, it didn't go into the technology, actually, yeah. in a lot of cases. It, what about today? Is that similar to what you see today? I, I think the whole world is a very different place. It's, it's exceptionally lean. I think the whole... We, we did some math, so the $25 million startup... Yeah. We reckoned, I did some math with the, C, uh, the CTO um, about a year ago. To do that startup today, that would be in about a million dollars. A million, so, okay. So, so there's a, a huge disparity in terms of the amount of money required. So, so, so going back to the late, early, yeah. mid to late 90s, yeah. dot coms were started and they had to build technology from scratch. They had yeah. to build applications from scratch. They went to an integrator, a tele yeah. technology integrator. They Absolutely. Spent we, we spent a huge amount of money with a... I can't even remember who the integrator was, but we built it and then six months later threw it away because it was rubbish. Right, now contrast that today, to get to yeah. the point about costs, these new technologies, they're basically plugging together existing yeah. off-the-shelf technologies, yeah. remixing them, mm -hmm. launching them. So the yeah. cost, so you're saying the cost has dropped by, the sounds from what you just said, by 99%. Absolutely not far away from that. I regularly say that to people, so they get really excited. So I was, there was a second startup after the first one, which raised another $25 million. And they kind of go, you raised $50 million. And they say, in real money, that's about $2 million today. Because it feels like, it, it's just, unless you were there, you have no appreciation of, like, it was a big sum, but what, how much did Webfan raise? Or Webvan, here, it was here, at hundreds of millions, It was right? $300 yeah. million dollars yeah. as their seed round. To set up I all mean, that grocery delivery company, yeah. right? And that's it failed it badly. Okay. Yeah, now, yeah. So you're in Techstars. You see companies every day. I think you accept like 1% of the candidates that apply. And, and at first, yeah. that doesn't seem like a lot of money that you offer. But you're saying you don't need much these days to get a minimum viable product. I mean, yeah. I mean, the reality is, um, coming back to our point about money coming down, is the barrier to entry historically was you had to go and find the right people to give you a lot of money. So the cost has con completely collapsed. Now, if you look alongside that, you'll see that historically you've always needed to know the right people, the contacts, the know-how, the expertise, who are the people you need to be speaking to. That, in some respect, has increased in value over time. 
but it's a total proportion. So if I describe like 25 years ago, or 25 years ago, 10 years ago, that was worth a million dollars, and the cash was 25. Today, it's still a million dollars, and the startup costs a million. So the proportion by which the intangible value of the know-how, the expertise, is actually increasingly more important. And by the way, that cost is continuing to collapse. I don't know quite how or how far that will go, but it effectively trends towards zero. And so therefore, actually, the need for money, money is important just to some extent with MVPs and technologies like that to just get the thing started, to keep the lights on, to, to feed the people. MVP? And actually, a uh, minimum viable product. So build your first product. A minimally prototype. viable product? A minimally, a minimal, I think. Minimally viable product? Yeah, exactly. What, what is that? So what is that? That is essentially enough to prove that there is actually a real product or a market for what you're trying to do. And what is the threshold for that? Uh, in what sense? How do you know if it's been, the value has passed a minimally valuable threshold? A when somebody users? says, yes, I like that. And sometimes actually what people mistake is, People believe that you have to build technology to prove that there's a product that somebody wants. Actually, there are other ways of proving that, and that might be just physically going and getting people's faces and actually spending time or doing clipboard surveys or whatever might be the case. The, the idea that actually you need to build technology first and then, because this is a big European US thing. So the US are extremely good at let's sell it first, and if somebody likes to buy it, we'll build it. And there's a really good example. The examples they give in, uh, in kind of the general scheme of things is you put up a big mock website. You say, I've got this really cool service. You really need to sign up. You do the sign up process. And then it comes through and it takes your credit card and you put in your details. And then you get to the other end and it says, actually, sorry, we haven't built this yet. But when we have, we'll take the money off your credit card. Okay. So there's a proof point that actually somebody wants that product enough that they'll put the money where their mouth is. So that's a really that's actually a quite a common thing that Americans in the technology scene are actually using as a as a proof point. Yeah, Europeans tend to be a little bit more shy. You already know this, and they tend to be a little bit more reserved and stare at their feet a little bit more when they go to a nightclub. Um, and what they're more likely to do is let's build it first and let's try and sell afterwards. And you know that more often than not, actually building stuff and what you want and what they want are normally two different things. So, so when you say Europeans are more like that, Europe is quite a large uh, you know, region with a lot of variations. A and certainly, certainly Britain is very different than continental Europe. Yeah. So how do you see that play over those between Britain and continental Europe? Or is there no difference? I think there's a big... Uh, uh, well, what's the answer to that? I think Europe is a very old continent. It's been around for a lot longer than, say, for example, the US. So I think there's a lot closer ties between Powell's America. 240 years. 240 years. So how many generations would you describe that? 14. 14. So in 14 generations, you have built everything that you've got today. So at some point, there's normally somebody within the family who has actually started their own business. When you've got something like the Romans did 2,000 years ago, you've got a few more generations. So as a, as a product in Europe, we have a lot more people who work for other people than they start their own businesses. And so, I mean, your, your point is that we just culturally are not set up to start our own businesses because we've been around so much longer and we've built enough infrastructure and enough kind of corporates. 
So I think the age of any jurisdiction, I think, actually has an impact upon the number of entrepreneurs in the community. It's probably true. Max, you look at financial markets all day. Does this feel bubbly at all, the tech sector in London or tech sector in general? I think it does feel kind of bubbly. I like it. You know, I've, been, I've just come in the last six months or so, last year, and coming into this area and talking to people. And um, it has a lot of uh, great energy, I think. The, the young, this generation coming up right now, I think they are very hungry. I think, I think Mark Zuckerberg is, has is had a Is it not huge... like the smallest bubbles in the world? I think, They're I think... They're not big bubbles. bubbles. They're like the little frothy ones that come around the edge of a glass. I, I think the Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> phenomenon has, has galvanized a new generation. I think this generation of 20-somethings around the world are really disgusted with themselves that one of their fellow 20-somethings can be $10 billion richer than they are with something that they, any one of them could have come up with. And I think in their guts and in their hearts, they're repulsed at themselves. Well, they, they're th- self-hating. <laughs> this comes up all the time on the show because we, we think people want to get into this industry because they want to be rock stars. No. And, and it's, you know, as we it's know... It's absolutely, it's bullshit. I know. And, and like, what's the typical exit? Seven to 10 years. It takes hard work. <laughs> I mean, you must deal with these people all the time. They want to come in with you. They want to exit in a year. Have, have, you, heard, mark, have right? you heard of a one up uh, no. What's that term? <laughs> so, I want to be an entrepreneur. Oh, want to be. Okay. So in any kind of, as you describe in the cycle, the bubbles, it's like there is a generation that come out and go, oh, yeah, we want to be entrepreneurs. That's a one entrepreneur. And, and it's, if you ask the question of an entrepreneur, most of them kind of go, I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm just doing my thing. It's like the, the, we had a, when I originally started my programs, I, I created this small survey for a bunch of entrepreneurs. The first one was like, so when did you first figure out you were an entrepreneur? And they kind of, some of them said, am I? Oh, people, other people tell me I am. I just don't believe, I don't think of it myself. I just build stuff. I, I build my own business. And that's the people you want? Those are the people that we want. That, okay. that just naturally gravitate to, toward building businesses rather than like, I'm, I'm not trying to be a hipster or I'm not trying to be a mod or a rocker. It's not a thing. It's something you are, you're not. It's, it's not something you aspire to be. Yeah, no, right I think that's, that's probably a better way of like, you know, separating wheat from chaff. Um, bubbles, l- small bubbles and big bubbles. Yeah, you know, l- let me hit you with a question. We always try to hit people with a, a bit of devil's advocate. I'm yeah. sure you got one, Max, but I'm going to hit you with one. Is, is the world too, is it, is it over-accelerated? Is it over-incubated? You know, we've had uh, Guayra's in here. We've had BizSpark, which is Microsoft's unit. Yeah. We see all of the, you know, FinTech Innovations Lab and this and this and this. Is it overdone? I mean, this is something you guys have been doing for th- yeah. many, many, many years. Yeah. Do you see these other, like, especially like a Telefonic or a Microsoft, get yeah. involved and you're like, look, we've been doing this. We don't need you here. Yeah. Does it hurt you? Does it help you? Uh, corporates or acceleration? or I guess both. So I think the biggest, so in the world that I exist in, um, I want smart people to get over the bad ideas and get into good ideas. So the idea of somebody standing around for 12 months in their own time trying to do stuff without any feedback. I mean, what we do is essentially just spin up feedback loops much, much more rapidly. And so what we actually discover is most people, the first thing that they want to do is not necessarily the thing they end up doing. So how do you move people through the cycle much, much faster? And actually, as a, um, as a community or as a country or whatever you want to describe it, is there is latent potential within any culture of a certain amount of entrepreneurs. Yeah? So I think there's a finite number of entrepreneurs in any given country. Yeah? So what you want to do is say, look, you're, you're genuine entrepreneurial. Let's get you getting, doing the good stuff faster 
rather than wasting a lot of time burning, spinning your wheels, whatever you want to describe it. And so therefore, you do that and we do that using other entrepreneurs. So that's the big difference. So if you want to talk about corporates, they do have things to add. But one of the things that we spend a lot of our life doing is, so my funding essentially comes from professional investors and angels, angels being entrepreneurs. We use entrepreneurs to help the entrepreneurs in the process. So it's a very, it's a horrible way of describing it, but it's by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. And it's almost like you're looking back retrospectively and saying, you know what, I made all of those mistakes. I don't want you to have to repeat them or have to go through them. This is what I would do now. So it's kind of how, it's a good way of spinning up the ecosystem much, much more rapidly. Max, what are you feeling like? I mean, you're, you're in the middle of, of making your startup. It's going to start, I think, in January. Mm-hmm. What do you find is, is the, the, the hardest thing? Is it getting the right people? Is it getting the right mentors? Like, uh, getting the right contacts in the industry? Or developers? I would say the biggest challenge in this space is coming up with a viable product, product plan and information architecture, like the documentation that goes into it that is the scaffolding upon which you build and go forward upon to avoid the dreaded scope creep. Uh, the idea you're going off, off the main thoroughfare of what you're trying to develop. So finding people that can manage a project, project managers, I've always found to be the most difficult person to find. There's a great technologist, people that can create programs and do things like this, but they're, they're not necessarily good project managers. Uh, finding a good project manager, however, is worth 10 good technologists, and, or whatever the ratio is. But I think that's, and I, fortunately, I have you know, found couple of people that really fit the bill so I'm pretty happy pretty pretty happy about that is, is that a story you hear a lot mm, see I would argue something slightly different I think actually in London today one of the biggest problems is there's a lack of good technical resource now it might be product or project guys but there's not a lack of as I described earlier one entrepreneurs it's it's kind of the BD guys there's like a million of those guys running around Old Street today but actually the thing which is you, you lack is the capacity to actually build interesting things and deliver things on time. Yeah, I think um, we're talking about the same yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, just in, in terms of managing a project yeah. and, and, develop, and having deliverables and delivering yeah. those things yeah. on time. So um, that, ideas, ideas are really cheap, but it's actually delivering a product. Execution and delivering yeah. is, 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 is hard to find yeah. people yeah. who can do that. And I think that's readily recognized across the board, both by other entrepreneurs and government and things. And, It'd be interesting to see where they come back in terms of what's the solution to. Because we, we spend a lot of our life trying to import talent uh, from whether it's Estonia or Romania or Bulgaria or whatever might be the case. But we still haven't. We've got, we, what's happened, and I know you guys know this already, is over the last 12 or 18 months, there's definitely been an increased activity around startups here. And the argument that actually seed capital is now a lot more available than it was because of tax breaks in the UK. Um, But you suddenly have talent, really good ideas, you've got money, but then there's this gap of like, I now need to employ another four people. I just can't find those four people to actually need to be able to address that problem. Let me ask you, Silicon Alley in New York was always the runner up in the startcom startup space Mm -hmm. and was really kind of, treading water for a number of years. Yeah. And then within the last 24 months, I would say it's yeah. exploded, right? Yeah. So you've got these billion dollar startups coming out. So it was just a matter of, 
getting a certain critical mass and then boom, mm -hmm. it became huge. So in London, you've got a front row seat. Yeah. Is there something like this in the works? Is there this is critical mass coming where suddenly boom, a billion dollar startup pops up and then it's suddenly like you know, total, they're on the map yeah. and off to the races? So I think the answer to your question is absolutely. But I don't think they pop up. I think they already exist. They're just not mainstream enough for people to recognize that they're coming through. Um, so in any, to get to a billion dollars, even Mark Zuckerberg, who did an awesome job at Facebook, it took him seven years to float a yeah, business. people forget that. These things just don't, ha I mean, they might feel like they're overnight, they don't. So you're absolutely right, with New York, these things have suddenly become much more, I think the word you're looking for is mainstream. It's part of the public, just like, they just, the ecosystem, and sorry, it's not even the ecosystem, it's just mainstream. Let me ask um, you this, so now yeah. that New York is a big, let's say, um, rival to Silicon yeah. Valley, it, because New York is culturally a very different place than yeah. California, and it seems as though talent's actually being pulled from California to New York, yeah. from kind of the Stanford space, yeah. more East Coast. Is, is that true? Or do you see that happening? And could it happen to London where somebody's saying, you know what, I, I kind of want to be in London because culturally it suits me. And so you might see just the cultural backdrop be an influencing factor. So I don't think we're actually drawing people away from Silicon Valley. But I think people are making decisions not to move to Silicon Valley to start their own businesses. I think that's a real difference. And actually saying, I think that's one of the big ethoses around Techstars, which is you should be able to build your business wherever you are. And that's hence, actually, the point being is we're actually everywhere apart from Silicon Valley. So we're in, okay. we started in, in Boulder, Boulder right. and we went to Boston, New York, Seattle, Austin, London. So that's a con you're making a conscious effort to stay We've out made of there. a conscious issue. I think uh, David Cohen, the founder, basically says we love working in ecosystems with a chip in the shoulder that actually want to not be in the valley, but actually want to be able to do the stuff right there on the ground with themselves. Like Max says, are we missing something in London? I mean, are we missing that PayPal effect where someone has a huge billion dollar exit and then those 10 entrepreneurs take their 50 totally. million and reinvest and it? That totally. And that's not just a London thing, that's a European thing. Okay. Because the, the conceptual idea of options and things like that has just not been pervasive within the general ecosystem. So when, when businesses have exited and made lots of money, there hasn't been this second order effect. You wanna create people who have enough money to pay the mortgage, but not enough money to retire. Because actually when you paid for the mortgage and all you have is your personal living costs, then it creates a whole different dynamic in terms of like, I just need to have enough to feed myself, but then I can take bigger risks about like doing something interesting. And, You've, you've maybe had the back seat in terms of you might not have been the founder, but you might have been one of the first 10 employees. You know what it feels like to be in a business that grows. And, and the big difference, and there's a really good example of that, in the northeast of England, there's an, a, an organization called Sage, which was, and I think te technically still is, the biggest software company floated in the UK. Um, and 99% of the shares were still held by the founders when it floated. They just, because the business started in the 80s, and only started making progress in the 90s. The idea of giving away shares to employees just seemed like alien. So I think there's certain things in the system which will spin up, and you're absolutely right. Until we have that generation, I see that generation coming through with Huddle, I see that with Moshi Monsters, I'll see that with, there's, there's a lot of other businesses that that middle management section will benefit and be able to pocket two or three million, or enough to actually say, I haven't got enough to retire, but I've got enough to start taking risks next time out. How many companies are on your radar like on a daily basis? I mean, like, 
that you try to get involved with, hook them up or try to grow their presence even after the boot camps? So selfishly, so I, I work in the assumption that I will help anybody who kind of reaches out to me. Uh-oh. Uh, well, people heard that and you're get a lot of emails. <laughs> well, as I just, no, I, I mean, it genuinely, I was talking this morning at a demo day and I said, look, it's dead easy. My name's John, J-O-N, and I work for a company called techstars.com. If you can't guess my email address, you don't really deserve to get That's my the attention. First test. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hurdle. It's not a very big hurdle, but it's amazing how many people, I mean, this is the big cultural difference between the US and Europe. So having that conversation in Europe doesn't incentivize somebody to email me. There's a significant proportion of people who go, oh, you mean I have to email you? You won't just help me. And, and it, it, it's, you, you laugh like it's, a, it's the smallest hurdle in the world. But it's amazing how many Europeans or London-based people will not reach out and do that. And maybe it's this cultural thing. I mean, I have this big thing, that, which is like, the Brits did pretty well at one point in terms of world domination and the Commonwealth and had the empire and did stuff. Did pretty well. That's yeah. well. Spoken like a true Irishman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, we're, we're pretty stupid. There's a whole different story behind that as well. But what's interesting about that is... We built the Titanic, though. Yeah, it didn't go very far. (laughs) You had to bring it up. Yeah, well, it was okay. (laughs) But what's interesting is I think what's ended up happening is the Brits, by their very nature, are very diplomatic. The English are exceptionally diplomatic. When you run an empire that big, there's so many politics. Like Diplomacy is actually one of the most important parts. But actually, I personally believe that what that means is the way the Brits actually speak, all of the language is very couched. We might do that. We could do that. We should do that. We, I mean, uh, Americans have a very affirmative, the, the language is very much affirmative. Yeah, well, I mean, and, I know. And, it, and it's this trickle-down effect. It's about the emails again, which is, well, I might email you. It's like Americans would say, I will email you. I'm almost surprised that when I'm invited to be on the BBC, they sent an email saying, we would like to call you about and discuss the possibility <laughs> of perhaps having you on the show <laughs> If that, if it works within, you know, maybe, right? Yeah. And then you call them up and, they, and they'll say, we're thinking about having you on this show and this is what we're thinking about talking about and are you in London? Now, contrast that with a New York network. They'll say, please be at the studio at 3 p.m. to talk about <laughs> so-and-so. Thank you. Click. Yeah, exactly. But it's amazing. I think, I think there's, there are subtleties within the system that it's not about money and it's not about engineering talent there are culturally things that actually have to change. And it's not just like a British thing. There's a whole bunch of Europeans which are exactly like that. But isn't there also a political element? I mean, in the UK, obviously, there's a huge political divide between right now being played out with the so-called benefits, uh, cutbacks and benefits, and the outcry from uh, sectors of the society that feel that they're having their benefits cut and uh, they deserve uh, the state to be yeah. providing these benefits. Yeah. And the state is saying, we want you to be more entrepreneurial. You know, we want you, you know, going back to the whole Thatcher yeah, revolution, yeah, right? Yeah, the yeah. state is taking this position. Yeah. So there is a political element to this as well, where people almost are reluctant to be entrepreneurs because they think they're becoming political sellouts. Like they're, they're forsaking their roots, you know, that go back to the socialist uh, roots. I mean, this is a huge... Are you, are you suggesting that Europe are just a bunch of communists? I mean, well, there's, a, there's a huge socialist, um, you know, uh, and communist uh, 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 political baggage that a lot of people still carry that seems uh, to interfere with their notions of just becoming entrepreneurs. Yeah, but does politics not just interfere with entrepreneurship in general? I mean, I always describe 
uh, and I'll probably get shot down for this at some point in the future. The interesting thing, we, we talked about why is this happening today? Actually, one of the things that actually, and this will be thrown in my face at some point in the future, we should be thankful of the bankers completely blowing up the economic system. Because actually the reason why, to some extent, entrepreneurship is a necessary evil is because there was a meltdown four or five years ago. Which kind of and brings so, us back to something here yeah. in London, which is financial technology yeah. or fintech. Because yeah. clearly they seem to be the world leader yeah. in this area, fintech. Tech. Yeah. They, they, they lead Silicon Valley. Yeah. They lead Silicon Alley. They're the number one in the world. It, or is that a perception that's misguided or is that true? It's absolutely true. And actually, if we were having this conversation in a week's time, I might be able to tell you something which was profoundly interesting about the need to do fintech businesses in the city of London today. What are the success stories? I mean, we've had TransferWise in here. We've talked about Wonga when you were here. Yeah. Uh, are there other ones that are, that are behind the scenes? Stripe, I guess that's kind of more American. That's an American. Yeah. Actually, that's They're Irish. Now. Yeah, John Collison, our, yeah, our guest, yeah, yeah. second guest. Exactly, yeah. him and his brother. Yeah. I, I think there's, I think what's interesting is coming back to this is a seven-year span. And even like Tavid with TransferWise, he's, he's what, into year three or four of the business? Yeah. So I think there's a huge number of businesses which are coming through which have really strong potential. Um, but in any given day, it's really hard to call which ones are going to come through. Um, but I think that's a big difference when you walk around Old Street. If you kind of go back, the ones we, that come up time and time again are the businesses that started six or seven years ago. So there's kind of a whole spectrum which are going to come through in the intervening period. Um, so um, I wouldn't want to call anybody out. And besides FinTech, because it comes up a lot here, yeah. as you would expect, because we're in London. But besides FinTech, what else do you see London winning in as opposed to the value. So what I would, I don't think we win. I think everybody wins. That's really stupid and couched and political. Um, <laughs> it is. <laughs> so I have to, I have to. I have but you're to, not a socialist. I'm not a socialist. Okay, but nobody Actually, wins. No, I'll tell nobody you what, wins. He's, but you're not no, a socialist. he's from okay. Belfast, so he's half American. No, half no, 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 yeah, yeah, exactly. So actually, in fairness, I, I regularly say to people, I'm completely apolitical. Having been born and brought up in Belfast, I have a complete distrust of politicians. That was. Ingrained into me. I could see that happening. And I have, Fair enough. And I have, and I say this, it's kind of a cringe when I say it, because I've got friends who, who have actually fought in wars to have the vote. I've never voted in my life. Wow. Um, and actually, I will probably go to my grave never voting. You I, and Russell Brand. I, I actually just think it encourages them. I mean, if we had a, an option which was none of the above, I would start voting. Yeah, actually make voting in the UK compulsory mm -hmm. and then the bottom one at the bottom says none of the above and see how many people vote for, actually, I don't want to vote for somebody. I agree with that. There's a couple of countries have yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, Australia does that. You can actually be thrown in the, into jail if you don't vote. Right, but you have the choice of none of the above. Do you? I, I, oh, I don't know about that. that. I, just, uh, I think I typically you, you have this. to vote for one of them and what they do is they, they score the card mm -hmm. as, a, as a protest statement, which is I don't want to vote for any of these people. Okay. Uh, sorry, so what was the question? I don't know, I'm trying to remember <laughs> what the question was. Um, <laughs> I am curious, because we're, we're sitting here, we're rubbishing the, the Europeans and the socialists, and I agree with a lot of that, but is there something that London does better? I mean, I oh, must sorry. say, one thing about the drinkabouts that you go to is yeah. that it's not, everyone I talk to isn't pitching me and isn't giving me their card, yeah. and it's not like this really hardcore way that the Americans yeah. do business, and there is something nice about, you know, that it's more of a community yeah. of people You've been helping. here too long. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Max, help me out here. <laughs> You've gone native. So, so your point is well made. And actually, in fairness, coming back to your question about New York, there's actually, I, th I think that London is much more analogous to New York than to Silicon Valley or anywhere else. 
And I think in some respects, they will become rivals or they'll actually become very strong partners with each other. So I think media in London is really strong and it is in New York. I think ad tech is really strong in both parts. I think fashion and creativity is really strong in both locations. FinTech, New York, London are also very strong in those two. So I think there's actually, they're, they're almost like kissing cousins, whether they'd like to admit it or not. And I think a lot of those things that we described, actually the Valley is not particularly good at. Like some of the biggest entertainment businesses in the world, if we kind of exclude people like Universal and Disney and the old school, actually have come out of Europe, whether it's Spotify, Last.fm, so, so there are things that um, Europe are actually... Post-production here in yeah. London is doing all the big post-production, yeah. apparently, for Hollywood yeah. movies and stuff. Exactly. So I think, I think it's rather than we're better, we just do... Well, actually, we are better at certain topics than others because we have an industry. It's not to do with the technology. It's actually the background in the industry and the sectors that exist are strong sectors and industries in the country. And the question is, can the tech community actually... Or can those communities themselves pull together and actually do interesting things? I actually think fintech is actually a really interesting space. And you talked about it. Transferwise is, is a really good example. Wonga is another financial sector business. Um, and there will be a series of them. I mean, I've seen a few. Damien from Judil. Judil is another really strong um, startup. Um, so... Yeah. What, what about you? What if you had to sign like a, uh, an accelerator NDA and you couldn't do what you do anymore and you had a chunk of capital is, and you had to pick one sub-vertical, what would you go into? Uh, so I already do two other startups okay. well, in my go. spare time because uh, I've just got so much time in my hands. Um, so I actually run, I'm a founder of a business called F6S, F6S, um, which is essentially if you apply to an accelerator today, I think we now cover off something like 95% of all accelerators actually use that platform as an application process. Um, so that was born out of my personal frustration when I was running accelerators, which was actually you get a thousand applications. How do you whittle them down to 10 at certain points? And so we built a whole bunch of mechanics to make that really easy and collaborative and blah, blah, blah. So that, that, that we did. And what's interesting about that is... There's now something like over a thousand accelerators around the world. I mean, there's a massive number because it's so cheap to do and actually to spin up. And all of the, the real value is in the know-how and the expertise. <clears throat> so that's kind of one thing I do do. The other one, oh, and the other story I tell about that is when there's a gold rush around accelerators, what you want to do is sell spades. Yeah. So it's kind of, we're selling infrastructure and we don't even sell it, we give the infrastructure away for free. Mm -hmm. The second one is, and it only just launched today, is a European tech blog called tech.eu with a guy called Robin Walters, um, who used to work for Mike Arlington at TechCrunch and then at NextWeb. Because I, um, one of the big personal frustrations I've always had is, I, much as I hate saying this, um, I think one of the core elements of a really strong ecosystem is having a really good media. Um, and I was talking to the guys from The Economist about this yesterday. And I personally feel that in Europe, we genuinely don't have anybody to stand up and represent European tech businesses in the media because NextWeb and uh, TechCrunch are very West Coast centric. Okay. Um, so that was something that I've kind of gone away and fixed. So I tend to, I tend how, not how to you, think how, of opportunity. Yeah. I think I spend my life thinking about like what are the practical bits in the system that might need fixing. 
And how did, how did, what did you do? In other words, I understand you, TechCrunch yeah. and these folks are very West Coast-centric, so you did what? So uh, Robin uh, was a European editor for NextWeb, and they had a reorganization in the middle of this year, and so we decided that we would start a European tech blog. Which is? Called tech.eu. Okay, so tech.eu. And yeah. so how long has it been up and running? Uh, what time is it? <laughs> so it's brand new. It's fresh. about three hours old. Okay, so this, this so we've been planning this, and it actually launched at two o'clock this afternoon. This is Friday there. So the uh, uh, popping out of the digital womb yeah. is this new startup, as almost in real time. In real time. So Absolutely. people are seeing that, like they're in the operating table the room, yeah. and they're seeing it being birthed. So like aliens. So you, you think it's undercovered the, the 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 tech sector here? So what what's interesting is each of the different. So Europe is going to be different. Actually, Europe's not that different from the U.S. So historically, the U.S. has been very focused around Silicon Valley. And what's happened over the last two years, you talked about it with New York, is there's been an eruption of tech hubs, being two words, not one, um, across the U.S. And whether that's Austin or Boston or New York or Seattle or wherever, there's suddenly this, like, you can do startups anywhere. You don't have to get in a plane and fly to the West Coast. And Europe is very, very similar in terms of it's got London, it's got Berlin, there's interesting things happening in Paris, in Stockholm, in Helsinki. But what's also interesting is the media is very regionalized as well. And so therefore, if you actually want to know anything about European startups today, it's really hard to find somewhere which is a, a node or a portal or whatever. So tech.eu is essentially what we've done is we, we don't plan on it being a large organization, but the idea behind it is we want to have two or three really good journalists that actually write original content. They might only write two or three articles a day, but what we're going to try and do is aggregate some of the content from each of these local um, media outlets and actually float up and curate some of the best pieces. But it's almost like to say, if you're an American and you're looking across and you say, I have to read something about what's going on in Europe today, there's a natural hub to actually start to glean some of that content. So that's kind of what we're playing around with. Whether, whether it works or not, I don't know, but it's, it's worth trying. Max, what do you like in London besides FinTech? Um, I would not and say warm beer. that I'm the best, uh, really. <laughs> I'm still kind of new to it. You know, my, I'm just exploring uh, what's Correct. going on here. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm, I'm the best. So what, what do it. you see being different from here, from New York, given I just said they're all, they're the same thing, but maybe slight timing slightly. Yeah, I think it's just six, six months to 12 months before it really breaks out in a big way. So that's what I find that exciting because it's going to be, uh, it's always exciting to be part of a, a big wave like that. And it's um, going to be longer, two years, three years. Yeah, but, but since I'm part of it, I like, I'm an op optimistically, <laughs> you know, I'd like to in, think that I will be helping that happen. In dog years. Do you, you, know? do you find that, that, that you doing what you're doing right now with Start Join, that, that uh, it's, it's easier to do, say, in London, that if you were doing something similar in New York, there might be more people to do it? I know Courtney Boyd-Myers was here. It was hard to get any idea out because there's so much going on in the media and so many ideas and so many companies. Do you think it's easier to start something here? Uh, well, I've always been involved in fintech in some way what I like to call right. fintech media. Yeah. yeah. So I've been doing that for 15 years in one way, one form or another, going back even longer than that. So there, when I came here and started meeting up with people, there was already a huge you know, fintech infrastructure. And I met a lot of folks that were doing very, very high-end projects for banks in the city uh, with very big budgets and doing very exciting projects. Uh, but they were not necessarily had a startup um, budget in mind. 
So, uh, but, but then kind of digging down deeper into it, found people that were ready to, to, to break out, you know, and, and get more entrepreneurial. Uh, but in that space, I, you know, there's, I think there's a lot of talent. What, um, what's the biggest mistake you see startups making? Uh, staring at their feet. Okay. Um, and want to be rock stars. No, but staring at their feet, what do you mean? Not making that phone call, not pitching, what, what? Not what getting mean? out and not talking to people. Do you think pe- it pe- is about pe- meeting people, ultimately? Uh, people are, I mean, one of my teams recently that went through Techstars, they literally stayed, they, they buried themselves in a bedroom for two years and built this awesome piece of tech. And you kind of turn up and you say, so what do you, what do you usually think of it? So we haven't launched it yet. It's like, well, it isn't finished yet. It's like, oh, it goes back to the autistic comments yes. you made earlier. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think this, is, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is the big struggle that, that Europe has, which is Americans are very naturally salespeople, whereas Europeans are, we want to polish stuff before we give it to anybody. And, and maybe that's a, an education system as much as anything to do. I mean, somebody said to me, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, that actually kids at high school actually are taught to do presentations. They're not taught to do presentations, but regularly have to stand up in front of their peers and do presentations. In, 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 in the high school. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Is that true? I remember show and tell when I was a kid, but... I mean, there's debate But show and, tell, like, like, show and tell maybe that is, is something my is. three-year-old now does. Yeah. Okay. Well, when I was but in high school, it's not something I did. When, when I, was I was in high school, school, we had a closed-circuit television network, really? and people were doing their own TV shows. Yeah. And that was broadcast to the entire school. Yeah. Because it was right next to New York City, and somebody's father worked That's, at NBC, yeah. and they were upgrading their their studio, and they yeah. they took the old studio and stuck it in the high school. Yeah. So then suddenly people had access to state-of-the-art broadcasting technology yeah. and started making shows. So I think just the proximity yeah. to you know New York and media. Was, is, is that why you see huge media you know, spillover into the environs of, of New York City? So maybe it is an American thing. There's a, there's a total lack of salespeople in Europe. People are, are like, very, very, I mean, this, we, this we've never rubbished Europe before so much on the Silicon Valley episode. It's okay, it's me, it's not you. Yeah, you're European. Yeah, that's fine. I'm Irish. Yeah, oh, all right. We, kind know, of, on, on, we on. hang off the edge of Europe, yeah? Yeah, you have the Euro, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, you don't in Belfast. Not in the Belfast, okay. we don't. Right, so well, in on Wall Street, right, there's that saying, ready, aim, fire. Yeah. Or ready, fire, aim. Yeah. Ready, fire, aim. And that. So that, that was, you know, in Wall Street, just get the order first. And then worry about you know, you the, the details later. Yeah. You know, yeah. Just get the order. Get the order, get the order, get the order. And then worry about it later. Right. So I think you don't find that here so much. People are very, you know, they want to... I, I, I don't see this as rubbishing it. I think it's kind of saying the... the unsa- it's not even saying the unsayable. Most people recognize this um, in the, the environment. And they know that like, somehow they need to be much better at it themselves. Um, so I, I don't think... Uh, I, I don't personally think it's rubbishing it. I think it's just saying something which already is known and exists in the, the system here. But there's and an industry people, around that and, British shyness, let's say. Let, 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 let's talk about four weddings and a funeral and Hugh Grant. Okay, yeah, that became a multinational huge hit because women fell movie. in love with Hugh Grant, who yeah. is not the American, you know, overselling guy, but the reserved, you know, fella. You know, th- th- that became a stereotype. It became a, 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 a type... And, and it was huge. And you see that playing throughout British marketing, you know, Schweppes is effort, yeah. you know, or yeah. something. They, they understated. The understated sale is part of the sale. I mean, they're selling understatedness yeah, 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 but yeah. in an aggressive way. I'm just trying to work out who you're going to find in the next 23 weeks who is the Hugh Grant of the tech world. 
I'm thinking there's, there's a know. challenge for you. I know. What, find that guy. <laughs> what happens when someone leaves your boot camp? Do you are they out of the womb? Do you literally kick them out, or do you try to take them on a roadshow to get you know more funding, or what happens? So um, the teams themselves physically stay in the same space. So the the teams have access to this, the physical space we're in for up to eight to nine months. Uh, so they don't go anywhere. Uh, we like to try and keep them in the same space to keep momentum within the organization. Um, I tend to run away and do other things in terms of trying to find the next ten teams. But we, we create a support structure for the teams, part of its peer-to-peer support. Um, but it really is like at some point you've got to let them free and get, get on with things. But one of the things that we recognize is uh, not whether it's week two after the program, but it's something that we feel that we need to do better at, which is supporting the teams beyond the program. One of the things that happens practically is they tend to raise additional funding. So... Uh, on average, the teams which actually participate in Techstars go on to raise about a million and a half dollars. So they get handed over to another entrepreneur or other investor. And so therefore, our job to some extent is done at that stage. We still act in their interests because we take exactly the same shares as the founders. We don't take typical investor type shares. So our, our personal approach is um, if you're the founder, um, we have exact same shares as you. So you're looking out for us and we're looking out for you. And over a five or seven year period of a startup, the biggest problem is, I was going to say lawyers, it's not that far away, but you're going to have a bunch of legals that happen in the system and you can't write in all of the clauses that you need to protect yourself. So the best that way what we've, we've discovered is we just align ourselves with the founders and that's the best protective mechanism for us as shareholders. Million and a half dollars on average? On average. That's big. That's a lot of money. And that's across 300 businesses. Like that's not like 10 on average. So we've got pretty strong proof that it actually works. You got the Midas touch over at Techstars. It takes seven years, but there's there's a few small gold mines in the middle of our portfolio. So we're pretty happy. All right, I got to hit you the question which we hit everyone with here. I might hit you with this on Max on London Real, but if you could make the phone call to the 20 year old John Bradford and give that young man from Belfast a bit of advice, what would you tell him to do? Why the hell did you do accountancy? As you can tell, uh, yeah, I'm a fully qualified chartered accountant with tax exams and all sorts of weird and wonderful things. I think what would I say is, um, why did it take me so bloody long to learn that actually I didn't work in corporate environments very well? I, I worked for Arthur Anderson for 10 years. And um, they, they announced to me three weeks into the, the, my training, they said, you know what, you're a pure. A P-U-R-E. I said, what the hell's that? And he said, a previously unrecognized recruitment error. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> nice. That's harsh. Yeah, it wasn't bad. I was there for a few more years afterwards. So I think the thing I struggled with was I, I kind of have a irreverence and within a corporate structure, even with someone like Arthur Anderson, I seem to always be the stone in the shoe. Um, and at that point, I just felt really odd. It just didn't feel right. Um, having said that, I couldn't be what I am today without having done all of the things I've done in the past. But, and that's part of the rationale I do what I do with what I do today. Sorry, there's too many do to do to do's. Is actually teaching people that they don't need to go and work for a large corporate. It's actually completely okay to actually just get out there and start your own business. And it's not an odd thing. And it's the most normal thing to do in the world.
you think they should do that straight out of school or do you think you should go, you know, get some, get some experience in, in, in a big company, go to Payne Weber when you're a young kid or, you know, go to the bank, that kind of thing. Do you think they should I, do that or go straight in? Uh, on, on any given day, I change my mind. Am right. I allowed to Good change answer. my mind? So sometimes I actually think I see the person I am today is because I actually had a framework that I learned to do a whole bunch of stuff. And it's a bit like going to university. It's the, the capacity to think within a framework and being able to give the freedom to actually do those things is actually valuable. Going straight out of university and just being told to just go make it up. But then some people are just built that way. I mean, I've got a very good friend, you should interview him, a guy called uh, Dwayne who ran Cashflow. And he tells an amazing story. He's, I'm not even gonna tell you the story, <laughs> but get Dwayne on okay. from Cashflow. Right. He's just <laughs> awesome. I would ask Dwayne to email me, but then he might, if he, he might not if he's European. Yeah, so. oh, it's okay, he's, he's, <laughs> he's a proper East End boy. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's actually just sold his business for, um, I don't think I'm allowed to say, I but say. a lot of money. <laughs> Okay, um, what was I gonna say? Advice to the 20 year old listening who wants to be part of Techstars or wants to get into this crazy business. What do you tell them? What's one thing that they should be doing? Um, doing it come what may. So what we spend our life trying to do is find people who are doing it and we can help them. We don't want, it's a bit like this weird thing around investment capital. You don't raise investment capital to start a business. You start a business and sometimes you need investment capital. Techstars is exactly the same thing is I don't want people to join Techstars to start a business. I want Techstars to be there to help support them in a business that they're growing already. So the best thing they can do is just get on, build a kick-ass product and make a real business. And that's the same as I say, whether that's Techstars and investment capital or VCs or angels. I think there is a real risk in today's environment that people think it comes a different way. That's the real problem with whether you call it Shark Tank or um, most of the UK Dragon's Den. Dragon's Den which is um, so I know one of the guys who used to be on that program and he said when I woke when I sat in one of the panels one day and I suddenly realized people were coming to me and saying I want your money to start a business they said you've got to completely wrong that's just the wrong way of doing this stuff and, and that's, that's why you take a small stake 6% or 10% yeah. keep it low so we want to just be enough so that we can make money for our investors but we don't get in the way Okay. Um, awesome, John. Thanks so much for being here. Um, uh, I just wanted to get Max's opinion. Have you changed your mind on Wonga or do you feel the same way as you did a few weeks ago? There was a recent ruling. Well, they recently, uh, because of my, my campaigning, they, they've had their uh, <laughs> business capped. Is it, capped. Is it they've over? They've had it capped. Uh, not over, but, but it's, looking it's that been way. capped. So my, so my, my, my campaign, so, I've taken full credit. So for, how many billions of dollars have you just taken off their share capital potential value? Well, I think of it more in terms of how so, many billions of dollars of, of people will not be impoverished by the predatory <coughs> lending techniques of this uh, scallywag. You, you're Wanda. bringing down the entrepreneurial scallywag. spirit. Scallywag, you yeah. really have been here too long. Mm. <laughs> it's socialism what you're doing. You're bringing them down. They were providing a service. Mm, no? No, no, no. I liked no. Wonga, but no, right. no. So the, but uh, it, clearly I hit a, hit a nerve because they've been <laughs> capped. So uh, next they'll be kneecapped. So it's either they reform. That's, that's or, Belfast. Yeah, exactly. We go, Pel <laughs> we go Belfast. Either you reform or we, or we put a, you know, put we a send cap you to in Belfast. Your ass, you know? That's it's it. It's a dangerous company to invest in because they're you know, worth a billion and now they're probably not. Just a little piece so, of budget. It's called risk. Through. Capitalism entails risk. You just want to be handed money with no risk? That's I mean, what I don't like about these bankers I'm in the in UK. Europe. They don't want to take risk. They just want <laughs> free money all day long. What's the problem with you people? <laughs> they haven't floated yet. You can't invest in them. 
No, I just, it was a rough valuation, I guess. Now who yeah. would want to, so. All right, so uh, thank you for getting rid of Wonga, Max. Yeah. Um, what yeah. else is on your hit list? Well, we're getting rid of Western Union and a company in the UK called uh, World First, which is a Forex market. So okay. one of my teams has just recently completed uh, Techstars is actually going after uh, Best Western, Best Western? No, that's the wrong uh, well, Western, Western Union. Union. It's a hotel thing. <laughs> Best Western. Yeah. Uh, because actually, you're right. Uh, the average fee that they have is they take 10% yeah. of money's transferred. Oh, yeah, because yeah, it's, it's similar like payday yeah. loans. They just scalp the people that can't afford yeah. to have bank accounts. Right? There's another one you should have Lawrence on. Lawrence is awesome. Okay. Who's doing this? He's, so he's originally uh, from Nigeria. Okay. And actually, the reason why he's doing what he's doing is because he's been through that process of having to send money home to his mum, who wasn't particularly well and had yeah, to go to hospital. The remittance business it was, is, is it's it's ripe for disruption, yeah. to say, to put exactly. it in the so, yeah. parlance of So you're going after them as well? Lawrence is trying to fix that one. Uh, yeah. I, 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 well, sure. Sure. Yeah. Not personally, but more as a collective. As a collective. Yeah. They're, they're a big collective of that collective. They're they're going out of business. Uh, all those all those businesses that are sending money using the techniques that they're currently using are are going to be out of business in, yeah. in, in three years. They're they're all be gone. And you know the finance world very well, Max. What else do you see? Do you think foreign exchange is going to be taken away from the big banks and and you know go into some type of fintech startup and other markets on top of that? Yeah, foreign exchanges uh, and and money wiring and uh, all all these services are are directly in the in in the crosshairs of uh, Bitcoin. Oh, yeah. So I was going to say to you, so do you do weekly predictions on what the price of Bitcoin is going to be the following week? Jesus, if we did, when Max was first on here, Bitcoin yeah. was like at a couple hundred dollars, maybe. That's right. That was so did six we, months ago. We got yeah. to a thousand. Yeah, it's this at eleven hundred. It, it went yeah. over price of gold. Just a couple of hours, you know, yesterday. Oh, what? One yeah. Bitcoin for one ounce? One, one Bitcoin and went over $1,240, $1,240. Went over the price of gold. So, but but the, the Bitcoin as a money transfer mechanism, yeah. you know, somebody sent $150 million last year, last week in Bitcoin. Their total cost was 39 cents. Was that the CIA? It's unknown who, who sent that money. How but do their we know total that was cost sent? was because it's all in the public ledger. It's all in the so uh, blockchain. You can see the so you can see it's all happening. And what then we had now a bank the bank doing that Iran same transaction. Ag- agreed to drop all of its nuclear programs this week. Is there something connected here? The, the, the Stranger cheapest, things ahead. The, the cheapest what, Iran and the CIA? What's a good way of <laughs> never happened. Well, I mean, well, I mean, if you want to get into that kind of comparative game, I mean, let's talk about HSBC. It's an eight billion dollar money laundering operation for Mexican drug lords that they've been directly responsible for sixty thousand decapitations in the last few years. So, who's a terrorist, buddy? Who's a terrorist? Hey, I'm not on the CIA. Who's a terrorist? <laughs> who's the terrorist here? Be careful, man. Look, jump all let, over. Let me, let me, so, so, thirty-nine cents to send one hundred fifty million dollars. Now, the cheapest any bank could offer that service of all the money center banks is two hundred thousand dollars. So, I mean, how are you going to compete with that? You can't. So they're going to have to radically reform or go away. And what's your call on this latest uh, price increase by Bitcoin? Does it help things? Does it help the market? Yeah, it does because it gets people talking about it. It gets the media talking about it. It gets adoption rates higher. Clearly, it's volatile. But uh, as the, the use of Bitcoin is exploding in China. It's hitting India. And the remittance business so, is huge. So how, how valuable does the total population of Bitcoin have to be before it's a proper currency? 
or a, a tradable currency a in question. a stable I, my, my guru on Bitcoin is a guy named Rick Focvigna. He was here two days ago, yeah. sitting there. He started the uh, Swedish Pirate Party. Yeah. And he's, the Time Magazine's 100 smartest guys in the world are yeah. in the running or something. And he says between two and five million dollars of Bitcoin is yeah, worth it. Yeah, somebody said to me yesterday it had to be at least 100,000 per Bitcoin. To, and to, to get to a certain liquidity level. Yeah, well that, if it captures 1% of the Forex market, which it can, can do, that's $100,000 per Bitcoin. Yeah. But that's the Satoshi, that's which is the one one hundred thousandth of a Bitcoin. I mean, then you'd, you'd be trading in these Satoshis, and you wouldn't be trading this, you know, in Bitcoin itself. But. Yeah. So the number of outstanding Bitcoins, which is at about 10 million, going to 21 million, that doesn't even matter, does it? Since they're infinitely divided. But how long will it take to get to 21? It's like another 100 years. Is it? Yeah. But that doesn't even matter, the number, because if you can no. divide it to whatever, it doesn't it, really it, matter it, how much, that's right. how it's, many It's divisible are. to quadrillions. To the so I, I was completely lost in this until somebody talked to me and said, actually, don't think of it as a currency. Think of it as a commodity. And think of it like gold. Yeah, I think that's true. And it's, it's a tradable commodity and a very highly liquid commodity. Yeah, I think that's true. But it's like there's a physical mass, and the word mining is not there for just a reason. But it's like we have an asset, and what you're having is basic economics, which is supply and demand. There's an increasing amount of demand mm -hmm. for a liquid assets, and there's a finite amount of supply. So it's only going to do one thing. The question tends to be, at what point does it flatten out? Yeah, that's end. right. So that, there's a big guessing game, and a lot of yeah. different folks have different opinions on that. But uh, I agree with you. You think of it more as a commodity. I think of yeah. it, I call it, like when I was on ITV this week, they said, what is a Bitcoin? So yeah. for the ITV audience, I said, well, it's a precious number. Yeah. You know what a precious stone is and a precious metal? Yeah. This is a precious number. There's very few of them, and they're highly sought after. Yeah. And they take it from there. There's a Warren Buffett quote I read these days, and he said, gold is something that we pay people to dig out of the ground so we can then take it and put it in a hole and pay people to guard it for us. That's how he described it as a commodity. But there is actually a cost of mining Bitcoins. There is. There is. Absolutely. So it's not that dissimilar. Um, yeah, but Warren, you know, gold is outperforming Berkshire Hathaway by a huge factor for the last uh, 10 years, 15 years, up until the last two years. So as, a, as, as an investment, gold's been outperforming his vehicle, Berkshire Hathaway. I'd rather be in gold, compounding at 22%, 23% up until recently anyway. So, I mean, as an investment vehicle, uh, it's been outperforming Berkshire Hathaway. So I'm not sure, you know, if I'm looking for outright rates of return, uh, silver also, number one return's been silver over Berkshire Hathaway. So... He's just blowing smoke up everyone's ass. That's why you're here, Max, to tell us these <laughs> things. Thank you. Um, Max, I hope you don't uh, retire with all of your Bitcoin wealth. It's a daily you, struggle. I hope it's you stay struggle. around. <laughs> you know, uh, Rick was here, the Pirate Party guy, and he said that he predicts a future where the new wealthy oligarchs will be all of these tech geeks that got in on Bitcoin on the ground up. Yeah. And instead of seeing like all these, you know, Russian money and Chinese money, you'll see all this geek money. And they'll be going around like living large and they'll be running shit. And we'll be like, God damn it. It's this whole yeah. paradigm that we didn't think it existed. It all depends. And Max will be up there, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, we were the first media outlet to cover it three, what, years five ago. Years three, three years ago. Three years ago. And you've owned them for longer yeah, than Yeah, we've right? been covering it. I've owned them. But many people in this space, uh, you know, one of the early adopters, I mean, if you put $30,000 into this three, three and a half years ago, it's worth a hundred and it's worth $100 million. <laughs> you know, for thirty thousand dollars. So, I mean, a lot of these people. But why would you have put thirty thousand dollars into this three well, years ago? Well, because a lot because people understand people who got it right yeah. away. Like I went to with Rick to this conference in Prague, you know, three years ago, and just the people in the room were complete converts to to this idea. Yeah. And they were accumulating these things, 
And you can, once you understand what it is and how it works, you know, you, it's really a shift in, in how yeah. you think and people accumulate them. So a lot of people have $100 million, not a lot, but $100 million, $10 million from, from virtually nothing. That's, not, that's a pretty common occurrence at this point. And, and of course, every single day, you see millionaires just popping out like yeah. bubbles out of a champagne bubble. That's yep. scary. Do you feel vindicated in some way, Max? Of course, uh, of course, of course, I feel vindicated. Yeah. I, I like, I like to, uh, to, to, to take, you know. Uh, in, in two weeks' time, yeah. you'll be a billionaire. Exactly. So there will be a Bitcoin billionaire pretty soon. I mean, the uh, the, the Silk Road guy, his yeah. his, his the Dread Pirate Roberts. Yeah, his oh. his stash. The guy the, accused was, of being the Dread. The, the, the alleged guy. Yeah. The, even the ones that the FBI can't hack, they're worth half a billion. <laughs> half a billion. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Max made a good point, is that all the Bitcoins they seized from the Dread Pirate Roberts, if that is him, they can't touch. That's right. right. Can't hack it. They can't hack it. So it's, it's still a, out there somewhere. Yeah. So, right. So it's not, I think it's not a coincidence, you know, in the last couple of years, you've seen encryption play a big role politically with Edward Snowden. Is that, is that kind of like, do you know when ships like uh, sink in the middle of the ocean and you create this bounty that you can go yeah, after? Is yeah. there an equivalent of actually going and finding that, those Bitcoins. Is there bounty hunters for uh, Bitcoins? Uh, it, it, well, the fact that it's, it's, imp it it's impregnable, it, yeah. it's done. Like the I guy, does it become a wasted asset? You saw it's, it's dead. There's a lot of Bitcoins that are just been lost and yeah. will never be retrieved. I think yeah. it's like a ship analogy, except there's so much ocean. Like yeah. you, you just it, will never find it. In fine, unfine. Yeah. Like the guy who we just can't learn this past week, he had Bitcoins on an old laptop that he yeah. threw into a landfill. Yeah. <laughs> They're worth $5 million now. <laughs> Now that landfill, those bitcoins, I think, are safe to say, are gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're gone. That's a fair point. Yeah. So actually, in fairness, the 10 million bitcoins actually aren't 10 million. Oh, that's it's, right. There's less, it's less yeah. than the number because yeah. they're, they're gone. They've they're, been demined. The, the actual... Yeah. Put back in the ground. Yeah, they're at, the actual float is probably a lot smaller. Okay, and where's bitcoin going next? Is it going to be stable here, drop again? No, no, I don't think it'll achieve any, any kind of stability for a while at a much higher price. Okay, but still going up. Yeah, a lot of volatility. I mean, what's interesting, I guess in the last couple of weeks, you've seen the emergence of these alternatives to Bitcoin, like Litecoin. Yeah. And there's like 50 or 60 other alternative currencies. And a lot yeah. of people are not trading in, in, these, in between the currencies. I think that's very healthy. It's good competition. And it, it just forces more adoption. And it, I think it's very positive for Bitcoin. Okay. And um, I think the Chinese are now fanatically getting into Bitcoin. India has yet to really embrace it. That's going to be a big move for Bitcoin. The hedge funds are now buying it as an asset class because there's a way to do so with the Bitcoin Investment Trust in New York over there at Second Market, the uh, Barry, uh, um, Second Mart, Barry, 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 right. Barry, Barry, the guy Second Market. Yeah, yeah. Not the not the Winklevoss guys. It's a different they, guy. That's right. Though they they're big into it. They they believe the market cap can get to 400 billion. Okay. From the current market cap at 12. To 13 billion now okay. that's obviously a big move yeah yeah there you go there we go john thanks so much for being here that's all thank if you people want to get a hold of you i'm not going to tell you his email address but it might have something to do with Guess. techstars.com <laughs> and his first name which is john j-o-n yep that's it um and uh twitter you're jd at jd, JD. yeah okay you're one of the early twitter adopters with the one yeah. and two letters uh yeah well i was lucky on that occasion okay good um max uh you're at max kaiser Twitter, um, what about StartJoin? Uh, if people want to get involved, what do they do? 
Uh, we have a pre-registration up right now at right. startjoin.com. Okay. So you can pre-register. And then I think our beta opens up. Uh, we're doing an internal beta. Starts next week. And I think we're going to we'll open it up uh, within four weeks. Are you going to give us any more details on this? You know? Um, well, you know, the basic, the basic strokes on it. I mean, there, it's, it's crowdfunding, except, you know, we're bringing in some new features. And it will have a Bitcoin piece within it, going into it. You know, the Bitcoin piece is kind of tricky because uh, for a lot of reasons. And, uh, but we think we found something that will be, that'll work within, within this, uh, in this environment. So um, I think that'll be add a lot of buzz. We've already got some people throwing money at it from the VC community at valuations that are beyond what I thought would it, be, it would be worth even a week ago. So. Fantastic. There goes the bubble. There is the bubble. Uh, <laughs> so. But a small bubble. <laughs> yeah. I, I, these small bubbles are starting to look bigger and bigger. <laughs> you know, starting, you know, like I, there was a time when the entire universe was, it was just a speck of dust. And then you had the Big Bang, you see? And this is from little specks of dust. These, from little you, small you, acorns. You uh, end up with the small finger. You know, uh, great oak trees grow. <laughs> All right, you heard it here first from Max Kaiser. This is a tiny speck, soon to be the Big Bang here, uh, a London technology scene. John, thanks for being here. Um, I appreciate it. Uh, your episode number 23. Uh, if you want to follow us, we're at Silicon Real Twitter. We just launched a brand new website that makes all of our guests look extremely good looking. It's amazing. Man. It will it's, take a lot for that to happen. Well, it's amazing what you can do with Photoshop. Um, and uh, yeah, if you've got guest suggestions, please send them in to us. It's uh, about the community and reflecting what's going on out there. Uh, we're having a lot of fun. But uh, thanks, Max, for being the co-host. Oh, thanks, Brian. Much appreciated. And uh, as we say, it's about the people. I wish you guys lots of luck. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Take care. Of course, when you're an entrepreneur, you want to retain as much as possible, um, and you want the highest price because it makes you feel good. But if you rate, if you take money from an angel or crowdsourcing platform, or for us at the wrong price, and you don't get to the next milestone, haven't created value, and you need to raise more money, going back to my uh, Gutenberg story, then there's going to be pain, and the investors are going to be sorry, you're going to be sorry. So I would say this, wouldn't I? But you know, pricing your company right, getting the right level of dilution uh, is right, making sure you raise enough to get to where you want.